2: September 12th, 1982. A violent explosion on death row sent Central Correctional Institute into chaos. Smoke everywhere. Concrete ash in the air. Fire alarms. Guards running around. Prisoners in and out of their cells. A nightmare scenario for any guard and every warden. At that moment, only one person knew what happened. Pee-wee Gaskins. He was serving life in prison at CCI and had been offered $2,000 to kill Rudolph Tyner. Tyner would be Pee-wee's last victim, and the murders that led Pee-wee to this point were numerous and just as brutal. Seven years earlier, authorities were looking for a 13-year-old girl when their investigation revealed Kim Gelkins wasn't the only one missing. Six friends and neighbors of Pee-wee were also gone without a trace. And that would be just the beginning.
3: He said, I ain't never killed nobody that didn't need killing.
4: He would like to prey on those folks that didn't have much family or anybody to look for.
5: He knew that if he was not there to stop him, he was going to turn him in.
3: My career has peaked. I will never cover a story this big ever again.
2: From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Peewee Gaskins was not my friend. I'm Jeff Keating. It was quite the spectacle for the South Carolina prison that housed the state's only death row inmates. A bomb had just rattled the complex, and everyone was trying to figure out what happened. This is Holly Gatling. She covered the story while working in 1982 as a reporter for the daily newspaper called The State. She had been in Cell Block 2 and interviewed Pee Wee several times. She also had the number to the Cell Block public payphone, Here, Holly recalls her conversation with Pee Wee Gaskins right after the explosion.
3: I got a call. I'm still not going to say from where, but I got a tip that there had been an explosion at CCI. And I knew he was the building man, and I had his number, and I called him. And I said, What's going on? He said, I need to call you back on a different phone. And he did. He called me right back. He said, You know, some. Some bomb went off, and he said, next thing you know, they'll be saying I did it. (laughs) I will never forget that. I wondered right then, right then, if he had something to do with it. So I was absolutely not in the least surprised when the investigation revealed that he, in fact, was the bomber.
2: No one could have imagined that Rudolph Tyner, who was appealing his death sentence after murdering Bill and Murdy Moon, had faced his final verdict. Pee Wee Gaskins, accomplished with the legal system, had been unable to do, put Rudolph Tyner to death. Here's former South Carolina solicitor Dick Harputlian. He prosecuted the case that resulted from this murder for hire.
6: Initially, everybody thought Tyner was trying to escape. He had made a bomb out of match heads and tried to blow his way out of his cell.
2: Authorities originally believed that Tyner's death was accidental, that he had unintentionally detonated a bundle of match heads he assembled in his cell. They initially thought that he was trying to blast his way out of prison. When examining the body, however, investigators learned that for the first and only time in South Carolina history, a death row inmate had been murdered while awaiting execution. Peewee's prison cell at CCI was located just behind and two cells down from Tyner's. They were connected by air vents. Here's Dick Harputlian explaining how that proximity made it possible for Peewee to kill Tyner.
6: They had vents in the back of the cell into the trace to give some circulation of air. So Gaskins befriended Tyner, and Tyner would yell in his grate. His cell backed up to the trace, as Pee Wee's did, except it was offset by, I think, two cells. And we believe, based on the testimony, that Pee Wee had run a wire from his vented grate to Tyner's vented grate and told Tyner to plug it in so he wouldn't have to yell at him. They'd use this intercom. And then when uh, Tyner plugged in his end with the male plug into the female plug, Pee Wee told him to hold it up to his ear, and then he plugged his end into the 110 socket um, and it went off. And the pictures are horrendous. Took Tyner's hand off. That speaker was pulled out of his brain. Then Wee pulled the wire back through, chopped it up. And witnesses say that he was laying on his bed saying, what, what was that?
2: Wee assembled a bomb disguised as an intercom system. He used a blasting cap, a radio, and wire running between their cells through the air vents. It was like two kids with a tin cup and long string talking to each other. Only this was no game. The explosion shook the penitentiary and instantly killed Rudolph Tyner. Here's Ira Parnell from the State Law Enforcement Division, a lead investigator on the case. That was bizarre. Just
4: crazy. Ingenious, but crazy. And then for the thing to work. Was nuts. Of course, Pee Wee pretty much ran that little area he was in down there, being the celebrity that he was in the eyes of the inmates, anyway.
2: Authorities quickly gathered plenty of evidence and charged Pee Wee with murder. They found parts to assemble a bomb in his cell. They got testimony from another inmate about the moments before and after the explosion. Pee-wee had recorded his telephone conversations with Tony Simo, the man who hired him to exact revenge for the death of his parents. Simo connected with Pee-wee Gaskins through a mutual friend named Jack Martin. These audio tapes were in Pee-wee's cell.
6: He would have gotten away with it, but for the recording. I mean, he recorded his conversations with Simo in which he explained what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. Jack Martin is the guy that hooked Simo up with Pee Wee. Now, Jack Martin had been in the prison, and when Simo was looking for somebody, he went to Martin, who he knew had been in prison, said, Who can I get that will do what I need done, and that is kill Tyner? And Martin said, There's only one guy, and that's Pee Wee Gaskins.
2: Pee Wee later claimed his murder for hire fee was $2,000, but the money didn't matter. Six months after the explosion, Pee Wee was tried and convicted for murdering Rudolph Tyner. It was a shocking story, even for one involving the meanest man in America. But what was the story that led to his sentence of life in prison? It all started with a missing girl. Kim Gelkins was 13 years old in 1975 and lived with her father and sister in North Charleston, South Carolina, a stone's throw from the home of Pee Wee Gaskins and his sixth wife, Donna. The Gaskins often hosted weekend parties and cookouts for friends and neighbors. And so the house intrigued young teens like Kim who might be looking for a party. People would come and go and even occasionally stay at the Gaskins' house for a while. Here's what Dr. Jim Beatty learned from his interviews with Pee Wee inside Central Correctional Institute.
5: First of all, he protected the children around him. He didn't want anybody cussing and drinking around his young'uns, as he referred to them. So he protected children. He loved to entertain, and he loved to buy hamburgers and drinks for everybody to enjoy.
2: And he was hospitable to people that he cared about, people that he liked. Kim was a quiet, petite fifth grader at Shakora Elementary School, who at 13 was older than her classmates. Kim's mother died the year before, leaving her to live with her sister and father. She established a friendship with Donna Gaskins, Pee Wee's 19-year-old wife. According to her elementary school teacher, Mary Ann Griffin, when Kim was asked to write about the person she admired most, she wrote about Donna.
5: She very much loved Donna uh, Gaskins, and Donna was awfully good to her. She was loving, she was appreciative.
2: And then, just like that, Kim vanished.
5: The teacher at Shakora Elementary School, Mary Ann Griffin was her name. She filed a missing persons report after a week and a half of Kim being absent. No one in her family did this. No one on her street did this. Those people under the radar didn't report to the police missing people. But this good teacher did this. And this put the North Charleston police on this case because there had been some missing teenagers and some deaths of people in around Charleston and the police had been criticized for being a little slack.
2: The missing teenagers Dr. Beatty referenced were three girls murdered in 1974 by a sailor from Charleston Navy Base. The children's parents complained bitterly about how the Charleston County Police mishandled the case. One year later, Kim Gelkins was reported missing and the police responded in full. Here's investigator Ira Parnell.
4: They began
2: a, a man looking for a girl from Charleston.
4: Detectives who were actually looking for her, her name was Kim Gelkins. She was the first one that I remembered that, that anybody was looking for seriously. Uh, they would like to prey on those that were runaways or folks that didn't have much family or anybody to look for them. He would choose those people because there wouldn't be much of a stir if they didn't show up and come home right away. When the detectives from Charleston started looking for her, that's what started the whole ball rolling, as I remember. There were guys in the field who were working 24-7 and running down leads.
5: And they ultimately found Peewee Gaskins was tied to this missing girl.
7: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With our flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
2: In such a small town, how did it take weeks before everyone knew that a 13-year-old child was missing? Who knew what and when did they know it? And what was it about this community and this family that it took a teacher to activate the case in the first place? Here's reporter Holly Gatling with her thoughts.
3: You know the whole culture and phenomenon of of dysfunctional families and the devastating impact that they have on children and subsequently on society. I think you know that's subject for a study if some sociologist would look into that situ- situation um, down in prospect. That would, I think, that would make for some fascinating reading thank goodness for that alert and caring teacher.
2: As reported by Henry Eichel in the Charlotte Observer in 1991, Detective Rufus Stoney and Sheriff Billy Barnes revealed that Marianne Griffin only found out that Kim was missing after she asked her younger sister Patty. Patty told Marianne that Kim had simply run away from home. When more time passed, Griffin contacted the police. She was informed that only family could report a child missing and that no such report had been filed. Griffin insisted upon an exception stating, quote, we're not talking about Ozzie and Harriet here, End quote. Kim's teacher knew more than the authorities about her precarious situation. The Gelkins were far removed from the idyllic Ozzie and Harriet sitcom of the 50s and 60s. After their mother died, Kim and Patty were sent to live with their father, who had previously served time in prison. Apparently, he told the girls to stay clear of the sketchy area shrouded in rundown rental properties nearby. When Kim's father learned that she had been spending time with the Gaskins, he went looking for Pee-wee. Pee-wee was convincing and simply stated that he dropped her off on Calvert Street and that was the last time he saw her. And with that, Kim's father stopped asking Pee-wee questions.
5: Soon after Marianne Griffin uh, reported Kim Gelkin missing, Uh, Linwood Simmons, the chief of police, put his two best men on this case. Chief Simmons did not want in any way to be remiss or derelict uh, in this particular situation. So he called in Rufus Stoney and Roy Green two of his best detectives and these two men immediately went to the Calvert Street area interviewing people talking to people trying to find anybody who knew anything about Kim Galkin and one afternoon they knew Gaskin's address was 1807 Calvert Street so they're patrolling and they see this person under a car so they stopped And Green, out of the window, called to the person and said, we're looking for a Mr. Gaskins. Do you know if he's here at his address? And this high-pitched voice answered, moved away about two weeks ago, believe they went to Florida. And Green thanked him, and they moved along, and the only thing that they saw were two small feet out from under the car. This was one of those many tricks that Pee Wee was
2: able to put on law enforcement. Pee Wee naturally deflected attention away from himself. He seemed to have a way of getting folks to believe him with little effort. As Dr. Beatty tells it, investigators were making regular appearances in the neighborhood, questioning residents. And while the trail leading to Kim remained elusive... Facts about other missing residents began to surface. North Charleston seemed to have a missing persons epidemic.
5: Mrs. Knight brought the story uh, to a head. Marianne Griffin began it. But Mrs. Knight gave information that people in the neighborhood are all missing.
2: After a dozen or so trips canvassing the area, police reached Miss Ethel Knight. It seemed like another dead end until she alerted them that she, too, had family missing. Three of her children were gone. Diane Bellamy went missing six months earlier, and two of her sons, Dennis and Johnny, had been lost for several weeks. The police made notes about these new missing person cases and kept asking questions.
5: A knock comes at the door, and Maddie Fortner, she is Johnny Sellers. Mother comes in, and she says, oh, by the way, Maddie, tell them about your people that are missing. Maddie Fortner says, yes, I have a son, Johnny Sellers and his girlfriend, Jesse Judy. I haven't seen them for 13 months. And these officers say, what? Why didn't you notify the police? I said, oh, this is, this is family business. We don't, we don't notify police on things like this. And in this one conversation, they learn of these missing people. They learn of Dennis Bellamy and John Henry Knight. They learn Johnny Sellers and Jesse Judy. Diane Bellamy Neely and her boyfriend, Avery Howard, are missing about as long as the others.
2: The missing persons list grew with every inquiry. Two households, six people missing, and no one told the authorities. It was family business.
5: But Those were two mothers who suffered loss and probably much greater hurt and suffering than I was able to capture even in my writing about them. They, they didn't show it.
2: With these shocking revelations, investigators had their work cut out for them. More connections swiftly followed, as reporter Holly Gatling recalls.
3: And of course, the law enforcement took it seriously and the threads started to unravel. And you know, I can't say enough good about the way the investigation progressed and the cooperation. I learned. A lot about forensic pathology just from this case.
2: Seven missing persons Kim Gelkins, Diane Bellamy Neely, her two brothers, Dennis and Johnny, Jesse Judy, Avery Howard, and Johnny Sellers. A complex web connecting the missing to Pee Wee. Kim lived just down the street. Diane and Jesse both lived with him at some time over recent years. Dennis Bellamy and Johnny Sellers worked with him. Apart from Kim Gelkins, all of the missing persons were connected to an auto theft ring in some way or another. And for a while, Pee Wee was the ringleader and protector. Investigators soon learned that Gaskins could be as generous as he was lethal.
5: Almost everybody he knew, uh, he gave uh, a car. He was a provider for so many people, and over and over he says, a lot of people look to me. And he knew that he had it set up exactly like that. And one of his uh, favorite um, use of words to me, I just love Pee Wee's um, vernacular, was was stealing dealings. He, He would go to Prospect when he had stealing dealings.
2: With Gaskins at the helm, the crew of friends, family, and neighbors developed a theft ring business. Pee Wee was a well-seasoned criminal, and while his scores earned him respect, his manipulation amassed fear. Silence was expected, but above all, he demanded loyalty. And in a crime ring, loyalty is as precious as the stolen goods.
5: He was obeyed, he was trusted, Uh, he was the man. He was the godfather. He took care of so many from their little parties to providing places where they can party heavily, if you know what I mean. All of the gifts that he used to obligate them to him is how he became, um, how he reigned as he did as the
2: king of prospect. Prospect. About 90 minutes from Charleston, Prospect, South Carolina was an important landmark in the investigation. Pee Wee lived at 1807 Calvert Street, North Charleston, but he stored much of his stolen goods in Prospect. Here's Dr. Beatty explaining the lay of the land in that community.
5: These were house trailers. He had a house trailer very close to his daughter's house trailer. And then there was a third house trailer that Pee-wee let some of his uh, younger girlfriends use when he was there and when he was not there to party in. And so he had, I believe, three single wide house trailers.
2: Pee-wee and his gang primarily lived and stole cars in North Charleston then hid what they stole on Pee-wee's land in Prospect. One of the members of this gang was Walter Leroy Neely. Walter was the closest thing Pee-wee Gaskins had to a best friend, someone he looked after, someone he helped out. Likewise, Walter aided and abetted Pee-wee.
5: I think that Walter was a victim. He grew up without a father. We know that his IQ was quite low. We do not know the extent of his mental illness, Um, but he was bullied. He was bullied by Pee Wee. He was bullied by Dennis Bellamy. He was bullied by his wife. Walter Neely was a tragic figure without having the, uh, the hero element of the tragic hero. He was a victim.
1: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
2: It was all hands on deck in South Carolina during December of 1975. As law enforcement and members of the community continued looking for Kim Gelkins. She had been missing for almost a month. After they learned how many of his associates, friends, and neighbors were missing, police narrowed in on Pee Wee Gaskins. They talked to anyone in his circle who remained. Eventually, they focused their investigation on Walter Neely. This is Dudley Salibi. He was the assistant solicitor for South Carolina's 12th District Court. He's discussing the relationship between Walter and Pee Wee. They met in prison.
6: They had interest in the same thing. They roofed. They worked as roofers together, but Pee Wee was the main guy, and Walter Neely was ready, willing, and able to assist him once Pee Wee decided upon a course of action. Walter Neely was considered to be Pee-wee's best friend, and, uh, you know, I did not know anything about him because we were all concentrating, all the media was actually concentrating on Pee-wee Gaskins. And uh, Neely, of course, was mentioned, and later on when uh, Pee-wee went to court, he testified as to how he killed everybody. That's when I really learned more about Neely than any other time during the investigation.
5: Oh, I think clearly Walter was Pee Wee's best friend, next to Donna. Walter's a little slow, is all. That was the way Pee Wee described Walter Neely. And he pointed out that Walter could um, straight wire any American made car in, in five minutes without ever missing one.
2: So Walter had some talents. Here is one of Pee-wee's former bosses, whose family-owned roofing company employed him for a while. He appreciated Pee-wee's work ethic at his third-generation company. He says that Pee-wee was strong and punctual. Unknowingly, the company hired a number of Pee-wee associates from the theft ring, including Walter Neely.
5: Yeah, we did even work that one fellow named Walter
2: Neely that was one of Pee-wee's friends. We didn't work him for about a month. He He wasn't a good person at all the associated press writer thomas cothran called walter quote a wiry nervous man end quote he was a major part of the theft ring that operated in north charleston Wee said that walter could hotwire any american-made car in under five minutes and that's just the sort of talent he needed but not everyone looked at walter favorably
5: he was just a mean nasty person so we didn't tolerate him He may have worked a month and a half for us years ago, and we
2: let him go. Walter didn't hold down too many jobs for very long. The theft ring, though, remained a constant, as it did for many people in this story. Johnny Sellers, Johnny Knight, Diane Bellamy, Dennis Bellamy, they all were involved in lives of crime. It was a means to fund their lives. And those lives were not extravagant. Walter had until recently been married to Diane Bellamy. At least that's the way that Pee Wee told it. As this story reveals, however, in the early 70s in North Charleston, the understanding of marriage and what it meant is often murky. Regardless, months after having her second baby, Diane left the children alone in the bathroom and the infant child died in the bathtub. Walter was crushed, and Pee-wee never forgave Diane for what he saw as an egregious violation of her duty to protect her children. At the very end of 1975, South Carolina investigators were deep into their investigation and were certain that Pee-wee Gaskins was involved in Kim Gelkin's disappearance. After Pee-wee eluded police, when he misdirected them to Florida, he got nervous. He might have had confidence he could continue that evasion, but he worried that his friend Walter would cave. One week after the police narrowly missed talking to Peewee, he arranged to have Walter placed in a psychiatric hospital.
5: When he realized things were getting hot, he had to deal with Walter because Peewee knew that Walter had to be out of the way or Walter would talk. He knew that if he was not there to stop him, to thwart anything that he might say, that Walter was going to bleed, that he was going to going turn him in. He wanted him completely out of the way and that was the best plan that he knew. So he gets Walter's mother to take him to the hospital and they sure enough said he is a danger to himself. He threatened to jump off of a roof and work last week and he could harm himself and may even harm other people. So Pee-Wee's plan worked.
2: While Walter was in the hospital, police were pursuing further leads and they ended up talking to Sandy Snell Gaskins.
5: And Sandy Snell Gaskins, the fifth wife, who was at that, that time living in the same house with the sixth wife, told the police that Pee Wee and Kim were often in Prospect. So that's how the case opened.
2: Wife number five, Sandy, lived in the house with Pee Wee, and wife number six, Donna, in 1975. Sandy told police that Donna and Pee Wee had taken Kim Gelkins to his home in Prospect.
5: That led them straight to Prospect and missing Kim Galkin.
2: At that, police got a search warrant for Pee Wee's prospect property. Within hours, 90 miles away, in one of his trailers, they found some of Kim Galkin's clothes. He had taken a minor child across county lines, enough to put out an arrest warrant. They also found several stolen cars on the property. The warrant was issued with charges of contributing to the delinquency of a minor and possession of a stolen vehicle. Police told people in North Charleston that they had an arrest warrant for Wee, and that news got to him pretty quickly. He immediately visited one of his theft ring fences for some cash he was owed. Wee then drove to Mr. Kolb's house. Mr. Kolb ran an interstate fencing ring that included South Carolina. He and Pee-wee had many stealing dealings. Pee-wee told Kolb that he was going to take a bus to see an old girlfriend in Mississippi. He then drove to the bus station and purchased a ticket. Pee-wee later said, that Colb must have called police at the time and ratted him out as a way of curring favor with the authorities. After returning to Kolb's house and passing time until his bus was to leave, Pee-wee called a taxi. When it arrived, he got into the cab. Here's investigator Ira Parnell. So
4: Pee-wee gets in the cab and they had police cars stationed on all sides of the house far enough away to where it wouldn't spook him. But if and when he left, that they would know it. They let him leave the house and get away far enough to where he, he couldn't get back in the house and, and have a hostage situation. So when they stopped the car, turned on the blue lights and stuff, they jumped out and, and recognized Daddy and ran to him.
2: is talking about his father, Bird Parnell, who was Sumter County Sheriff from 1953 to 1981, Bird had arrested Pee Wee years earlier and had several other interactions with him.
4: He was fairly confident that, that he could trust Daddy. He knew he was fair with him. He knew he wouldn't mistreat him. So it went to the one he knew. He probably wasn't as sure about the rest of them. He just knew the rest of them fellows would go kill him if they had a the chance. And they may have, I don't know, but if they didn't have the chance, and it never happened, so. He, uh, he, he did surrender to dead.
2: When he was arrested trying to flee, Pee Wee had a box of his belongings sitting in the taxi. Investigators never determined whether or not he was really going to Mississippi, but he was carrying his 30 30 rifle and a pistol.
4: Interestingly enough, it was a little Beretta 32 semi semi-automatic pistol that Pee Wee had taken on an electric pencil and written his name on the side of the gun. That's a signature almost, Donald H. Gaskins. That was obviously his gun because, of, you know, why else would you put his name on it?
2: Police arrested Peewee and questioned him about Kim Gelkins for the next several days. And Walter Neely was still in the psychiatric hospital while all of this was going on.
5: And suddenly, four days later, Walter's released as normal, taken back to his mother's house in Charleston where the police were waiting in automobiles outside.
2: It was a significant part of Walter's forthcoming legal case, whether or not he was under arrest at this point, whether his Miranda rights were issued and pertained to his testimony. But under investigation, Walter said he knew nothing about the disappearance of Kim Gelkins. He did admit, however that he knew about another missing person that Pee Wee had buried.
5: So that was the beginning of his being the informer that ultimately gave the testimony that, um, that did Pee Wee in. I really don't know why, but he just decided to come clean.
2: This is Billy Barnes, Florence County Sheriff in 2006. He was at the forefront of the investigation.
5: And I don't know if he and Wee had a falling out or if he thought he was going to catch the pressure from all of it
6: or what, but he just finally broke down and started talking about a mass grave site in Florence County.
2: Walter told police about a body buried on some property near Prospect in Florence County. Right on the border with Sumter County. There was a body buried there in a shallow grave. Yes, I can take you there, Walter told investigators. The police searched the area as Walter guided them. He's right there with them, but they find nothing. It's December. It's humid, low country cold. Detectives from North Charleston, from Florence County, from Williamsburg County, all of them scouring the field. Here's Ira Parnell who was with the search party.
4: It might lead to what we later determined to call call his graveyard. They cornered a swamp in the field down there in Prospect. By the time they had pretty much narrowed it down and located that area, they had not found anybody yet, but they were pretty certain they were in the right vicinity. So at that point, they called for all the help that they could get. So we were using body probes, using long steel rods with a handle across the top of them just to look for soft spots in the ground.
6: I didn't know where it was. I was working out at the Florence television station. They said prospects need to go down there. They're digging up bodies.
2: This is Cecil Chandler. He and Holly Gatling were both journalists assigned to the Pee-wee story since the case first broke.
6: So, you know, I took off down. There. I was a one-man crew at that time. and went down there by myself, and I got there and Sheriff sure, Billy Barnes said, we, we have some graves. We don't know how many people at this time.
3: I know it was a big story. I was 25 years old, and I can remember thinking to myself, my career has peaked. I will never cover a story this big ever again.
4: But as we were walking through the woods, just walking along slowly, probing and looking, and somebody reached down and picked up a, or grabbed a hold of a, a bush and it came out of the ground. And we looked at it and it had been cut off and, and placed at that spot, in other to camouflage. So, we started looking there, and you could just about outline the grave. The first two we found were the last two that he buried, thankfully, John Henry Knight and uh, Dennis Bellamy. They were the most well-preserved of any of them, as far as what we found that day. First day, we dug up six. They were buried two to the grave in three different holes.
1: Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Courtney DeFries and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFries, and Terry James. Edit, Mix, and Sound Design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn, and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Baby. Additional thanks to the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections and the University of South Carolina.
7: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
1: Slash I Heart.